So I think that multi-terrain people who can do, even if you are an athlete who operates on a pristine soccer pitch, if you can get out into nature and just operate your body at least once a week in nature and ask it to do just natural things, then you're going to be, I think, more resilient. That was Helen Hall, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's show is brought to you by Lost Empire Herbs. You can get 15% off my favorite herbs for well-being and athletic performance by heading to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. About three years ago, I got into herbalism after having Logan Christopher on the podcast, starting with the Phoenix formula, which literally had my body buzzing after I took it. Not in a jittery way, like coffee, but in a way where I really felt the herbs working with my body. Within two weeks, I was already noticeably stronger in the weight room. And ever since, I've made herbalism a regular part of my training regimen. I've totally ditched any sort of caffeine-laden pre-workout, and I really enjoy using supplements that come directly from the earth. Lost Empire Herbs was started by Logan Christopher and his two brothers to help bring back the lost empire of nature in our connection to it, and to bring the power of herbs to the general public. Again, if you want to see my favorite herbs, such as Shilijit, which has been mentioned by other podcast guests on this show, Phoenix Formula, and more, as well as get 15% off your purchase alongside a 365-day money-back guarantee, head to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. Welcome to another show. Thanks for tuning in. A memory I have of probably around the middle of my coaching career thus far is in working with club track athletes. In club track, I worked with a lot of individuals who were ages 9 to 14, and a lot of those athletes were also in the middle of that growth spurt period. And where reactive strength can really take a hit. And it was also interesting to see athletes doing sprint accelerations, like 80 athletes, a wave of eight at a time, doing just sprint accelerations all right next to each other. And you could just see all the differences and nuances between their technique and how their feet were operating. You would see athletes running just like gazelles with their feet, placing their feet with precision and really getting just snap off the ground. And then you would see athletes right next to them hitting with their their feet to the ground like a ton of bricks. And a lot of times these athletes also had really big bulky shoes. And there was just a massive difference. And you would, or I would think about how that was going to impact that athlete throughout their athletic career. And then things that could be done to try to reverse that degeneration of the foot that was happening. I always enjoy talking to guests who have an integrated view of locomotion, who can blend multiple ideas together and help me understand what's going on with the athlete in front of me just a little bit better. I've always been interested in the foot in particular, and our guest today, Helen Hall, has such a breadth of knowledge when it comes to all things running, joints, the feet, as well as natural learning. Helen previously appeared on this show on episode 180, talking about all things joint mechanics and technique in running. She is the author of the book, Even With Your Shoes On. Helen is an endurance athlete, a minimalist ultra-distance runner, and is also credited with being the world's first barefoot iron woman. Helen is the owner of the Perpetual Forward Motion School of Efficient Running and uses the latest movement science and gait analysis technology to help people find solutions for their running problems and reach higher levels of performance. On the show today, Helen will go in-depth on heel striking and the biomechanics of the heel in the running cycle. So what's a good heel strike? When is it helping athletes? When might it be a problem? She'll speak about this and then how we can use natural environments, hills, uphills, downhills, 
to give athletes a better sense of what their foot is doing. So to get that sensation and then to use that sensation to maximize their running cycle. She'll close out the show speaking about glute development or using hills to really leverage glute development and running. Before we get to the show, just a couple quick things. Uh, one is we do speak on pronation and supination quite a bit in this um, podcast, this episode, but also this podcast. And just quick, very quick definitions, kind of hard without a little foot model in front of me, but just think of pronation as the flattening of all three arches of the foot and the supination is just the opposite. It's the doming back up of the foot. It also could be the position the foot is in in preparation to strike the ground. So you have those two things. And then also we did get into the show or you will jump into the show a little bit through it. I will say the first series of questions or question that I asked Helen, I probably didn't do the best job with. And so I just started the show at what I felt like was probably the most helpful launch point for this topic. There is a point later in the show where Helen will reference a runner that came out of the first part that I clipped, uh, that she, a runner that she worked with, that she gave feet, sensory-based feedback exercises to help clean up his gait pattern. So that was in the first half of the show. Anyways, so much fun to talk to Helen, and it really makes me appreciate that natural functioning and natural learning style of the human body. And I know you guys are going to enjoy this show. Let's get on to it. Episode 287 with Helen Hall. This fascinates me. So with heel striking, I, I guess if I would look at like coaches, whether you're a running coach, working with runners, whether you're working with team sport athletes, it's just like rampant. And so could you start by like why, maybe just saying like why amongst, I'm sure there's several reasons, but why do you feel people heel strike in the first place? And then what is your progression to help them remedy that? Well, which does rather suggest that I think that um, I would want to remedy that. And, and I actually never change somebody's first point of contact. Their bodies change their first point of contact themselves. And I think that's an important point because there's no right or wrong here. Uh, there can't be a right or wrong because there are so many people that their first contact is the heel when they run. So it can't be wrong because they're not in pain. Now, I come at the conversation from a conversational point rather than a confrontational point of, well, is that as efficient as I can help that person move? So if I look at efficiency of movement, what I understand to be efficiency is, in my experience, a lengthening under load to access the free energy from recoil. So tissue recoil offering as much as is humanly possible and then effort and conditioning, of course. So if we're walking, then first contact with the ground being the heel, given the fact it's, its shape lends itself to be rolled through, you'd think, well, that, that makes sense. But I've still got one foot in contact with the ground. So it isn't a heel strike. So there's no impact or the degree of impact is tempered. You can walk quite happily barefoot on hard surfaces when you've still got one foot in contact with the ground as you walk with a first contact being the heel. When you run, it's a different matter because it depends on your vertical oscillation as to how much impact you're going to have on that heel when you land on it, if that's your first point of contact. So if we stick to the efficiency, because I digressed already, we stick to the efficiency, we are not, if it's eccentrically loading, 
and I got pulled up on that pronunciation uh, a while back. I thought it was eccentric, uh, but it's not. It's eccentric. I checked the Cambridge and Oxford Dictionary. It's eccentric. Eccentric loading of that Achilles tendon is not happening when you heel strike because you're presenting the heel to the ground, toes up in the air. Which, but now you're in a, you're in open chain still. So this is just a, an active stretch, if you like, of the Achilles. It's not an eccentric load. And then you're down on the ground and you roll through the foot versus if you land somewhere in front of the heel and the heel descends under load, then you get the eccentric loading of the Achilles and all it attaches to. And then when we know that we can walk with a ruptured Achilles if your feet are strong enough, but we cannot run, Mm. we cannot run with a ruptured Achilles. So you think, oh, okay, so... That feels significant in me, Uh, and I'm not a scientist, and I'm not a researcher. So from my empirical and experiential standpoint, it just seems to be to be more efficient if I can load that biggest tendon in my body by not landing on the first bone of the foot, but coming back towards it in order to load the Achilles before I uh, roll off the front of the foot. So in terms of efficiency, I think landing somewhere in front of the heel is more efficient. And then, of course, you end up tipping the scales. Where is that balance point when it becomes not as efficient? And if you are too at the front of the foot and you hold the heel high or you spend so little time on the ground that the heel doesn't have time to do any descending, then Again, you're not loading that Achilles eccentrically, even though you're not landing on it, you are landing in front of it. So where is that sweet spot where you're able to eccentrically load the Achilles without it being more work than it needs to be and without it being injurious? And why do people heel strike is the answer lies in, because there's lots of people saying it's okay to, because people can with shoes on and the vast majority of people run with trainers on and the shock absorbing of the trainers does a great job in making, wrapping your heel up in cotton wool so you're not feeling the impact Mm -hmm. of that landing. And because it is a this versus that situation. So people decide that they're in this camp or that camp. And thereby the camps continue to exist, running parallel with each other and seeming never meeting and exchanging ideas because it's a confrontational situation, which is, I find, deeply unpleasant. One of the things I really enjoy uh, in having a conversation with you, Helen, is you you bring out so many ideas. I, I mean, in many cases, I'm trying to think of like, okay, one or two follow-ups. I, you always present me with like four. So I'm going to, which is fun for me because I'm like, okay, how many of these can I juggle in my head? But it's a great thing. I love how you say uh, conversational rather than confrontational. I just think so often the attitude is confrontation. I'm in this camp. I'm in this. I hear that all the time. I just wish we could just have a conversation and you know, start start with the things we agree on, and then we can work work outward from there. But let me just uh, just so one of the things I'll, I'll just knock it out before I get any further because I I think it's worth mentioning is you you talked about socks and and I do want to get back into heel striking and and jogging and sprinting and things. But because I've thought about this, like what's what's the happy medium, right? Because if you don't wear socks, you have more sensation, but then you sweat and your foot slips around and that can be difficult. 
is there like a maybe you mentioned this on the last show i don't remember but what do you what's your happy medium there in that world with like footwear socks and, and sensation yes so if uh generally speaking in my experience training shoes have not been designed with uh the idea that they're going to be making contact with skin there are too many seams without the extra layer of a seamless something else you're just always in this realm of blisters because the foot is a 33 jointed amazing thing with a wrapped in skin and the shoe is however pliable it is but it's not 33 joints so it's not going to move with your foot bearing in mind the manufacturers don't custom make these things yet uh, i know 3d printing is on its way but it's not here quite yet and so trainers without socks if you can find a pair that you don't blister in fabulous but if you start to train either it's warm weather or you train far your feet sweat their, that their domain is to get rid of a lot of heat uh, there's a lot of sweat glands there and you're going to be in a puddle of sweat sliding around. So then a sock is really helpful. What I used to do was put a layer of Angora wool, so like a piece of felt, which would soak up quite a bit of the sweat. And that worked really well. So it's a top tip there. I can't remember the, the company that made them, but if you just if you Google Angora wool insoles hmm. uh, and it's just a piece of felt, then they are so much better than any of the manufacturer's insoles that come with and they can soak up. Other than that, um, I find toe socks to be the, the best option for me and many people I've worked with simply because the shape of the toe box isn't herding all of my met heads together and squishing my toes into doing things that they don't really want to do simply because it's the shape of the sock. Cool. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I, I love not wearing socks, but then after like 30 minutes, it's just like kind of not the same shoe anymore. Like I actually feel the slip and it's like, which is kind of cool because I'm like, okay, now when do I actually get to push? And uh, but it's not because I. <laughs> so uh, awesome there. All right. So before I lose like my other thoughts, so one, you said descending the heel, and so from my knowledge of like Gary Ward stuff and and biomechanics, it, that would be anteriorly tilting of the heel, correctly? Like you're you're striking in the the heel is anteriorly tipping to load the foot with energy. Is that what you're speaking of, or is it something else? Well, actually, so that's debatable. In the, the foot form that you're landing in, you're landing in, uh, you want to be landing, uh, not in a pronated foot. Uh, so the, the calcaneus is anteriorly tilting, tipping forwards when you are rolling through it, walking. Mm. So when you go from the back of the heel to the front of the foot, the anterior tilt, if the calcaneus can do it, so if it does it, you are on your way towards pronation. But in, in the context of running, everything, you are landing on, a, on a, a bit of your foot and the heel is descending as in in space. It's descending towards the ground under the load and the control of every sinew in your body that is, yeah. is controlling that descent of you so that it doesn't crash land. 
So the, the fine motor skills of your lower leg compartment yeah. and all the extra extrinsic and intrinsic muscles that coordinate to stop the crash yeah. landing of the heel bone as, as it follows wherever you landed just in front of the heel bone. So the descent is arguably, actually, it's a posteriorly tilted calcaneus because mm. you're landing in a supinating foot unless your foot is going to go splat immediately. Yeah. So that, that's technical. But then uh, I know that somebody may have popped up and said, well, technically, <laughs> it's a supinating, mm -hmm. posteriorly tilting calcaneus. So it's a descent in space I'm talking about. We want the heel, we need the heel to descend in order to load the Achilles tendon. It needs to stretch under load. So if the heel stays high and off the ground, you're never, you're never getting that stretch of the Achilles and everything it attaches to all of the uh, posterior calf compartment of the calf. So we need all of that tissue in the posterior compartment to be lengthened under load as the bone that they attach to gets closer to the earth and not forgetting that at the same time you are still traveling forward. So you have the downward trajectory as well as with your body traveling forward to the stretch trajectory because you're already leaving it behind you. So we have already two directions of force, vectors of force that are stretching and talking this juicy tissue up, waiting to then recoil and give you at least maybe two dimensions mm. of recoil, if not possibly three, if you have that available. Cool. Yeah. So with that, I, I think about, I think it was on this podcast, David Gray talked about Running is more of a supinating experience than it is pronating. And I think that would be largely virtue of ground contact time too. Like you're just not on the ground as long as walking. So you don't need to pronate the foot as much. Yeah. So exactly. It, would it be efficient to pronate? And it depends on the def definition of pronation. So how many people are talking about how many degrees of tilt of the tibia do you have? So I don't know if somebody has decided that a certain amount of tilt of the tibia is that amount to register it as a pronation. I think it would be, depending on the foot it belongs to, how much tilt does that person need to trigger the pronation effect through the tibia on top of the calcaneus, tipping it forward, pushing into the navicular, mm -hmm. into the the middle uh, arch bones into the metatarsals, into the toes. So a lot of things have to happen in maybe a third of the ground contact time as walking. So whilst you may be heading from less supinated, uh, from supinated to less supinated, which is in theory towards pronation, whether or not you actually arrive at a pronated foot is really strongly questionable and is it even desirable you'd have to be on the ground for too long now you've lost all of your momentum which is another element of efficiency not the same as the eccentric loading different so we now layer another we want the eccentric loading and we want no loss of uh, momentum through spending too much time on the ground and then the resulting elastic recoil being disappointing like holding your catapult for too long, taking a little bit of the stretch off, and then you let go, and it's a disappointing thud rather than mm. a thwack. Yeah, with the 
So with yeah, whether it's running slow or slower or sprinting, I know you're still going to have that outside edge, regardless. I guess whether it's heel or mid middle of foot, you're still on the the outside, the pinky toe side, not the like if you landed totally flat, like you probably would over pronate the step. It's always you always have that loading. I guess I was asked about the heel bone tipping more. I guess from two two points. One was like the thought of, and you just kind of mentioned it, like there should be some pronation right like this shouldn't you you shouldn't be on a locked supinated foot and that wouldn't work very well actually i thought about um and david gray had posted this a lot it's like usain bold accelerating from the back and you actually see quite a bit of pronation happening you makes you wonder it's he, i think he's wearing like tennis shoes and it's very like it's a more of a maybe he's thinking more bounce too i'm curious how that would compare to how much pronation's happening when he's in spikes and going full full go but there's clearly like that's i'm just saying like there's there's something going in that that loading it's just not a splat like it's not Anyways, so that's probably getting in the weeds. I'm sure that, especially too, I feel like when we're talking about the fine nuances of exactly what's pronating, exactly what's supinating, exactly what point of stride, it's like a Darren Barris that's more circles. It, thinking in circles is a little bit easier. And I don't know, I just didn't want to get in the weeds. I was just curious. I say that for myself, my own sake, and where I'm going, I'm trying to process all this. But so I'll say this too is. It seems like, and I'll draw this distinction, I know in runners, like marathon runners a lot, they will heel strike and it's fine. And like, and I'm sure that's what you're referring to. I guess maybe my frame is a little bit like the, the team sport player. And you talked about rate of eccentric loading, like a team sport player who's trying to run fast and they still have too much heel strike. I think that's more where I was going for in terms of like, how would you help that athlete? feet like get out of that <laughs> and and why might when there's too much heel loading why does that happen and how can you help them get out of that so you're quite right with uh just uh finishing the sentence about the the pronation you want to land on a foot that is relaxed enough to give mm. so you are always going to head off towards pronation if the foot is relaxed you are relaxed the anchor is relaxed the bones of the foot react to the touchdown. There's a rigidity, but there's a give. Yeah. There's a rigidity and a give. There has to be, otherwise it would be so unbelievably uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And when a soccer player who is able, uh, so are they the same? Do they wear the same boots in your country as here? So they're, they're flat with studs at the front. Yeah, same, same thing. Yeah. Yeah, and th- there's no cushioning, but they're on grass. Yes. So my take on that is that they are, they're reaching for the step and by reaching for the step through hip flexion, they're ending up on their heel first and that may be giving them more traction on or controlled as they go through the forefoot on the spike. I'm not a soccer expert, but I can see that in certain circumstances, reaching with the stride to land on the heel to then plant the forefoot to then do something else with the ball something that's asymmetrical might be really helpful but i think that they can also get stuck in ruts to a degree that that is the way to run there is also a difference between a heel strike a really heavy heel strike and a pretty flat foot landing where you land on the heel but it's it's actually when you slow it down it's only just you. They, the person goes in looking like they're heading for a massive heel strike, toes up, 
And actually, at the point of contact, their toes have come back down again, and the and it's it, altogether calmer, and my heart is back mm-hmm. out of my mouth. And how would I get, if I felt it looked injurious, if I felt that the reason they had come to see me was because actually there were way too many forces going through that hip, that knee, that heel bone, and they were making life so much harder for themselves, then I would just take them to a top of a hill. Straight away, I would take them to a top of the hill and we would just run up and down that hill and allow the body to rediscover a different way. And then the the brain will choose more comfortable and they may never go back to that heel strike again. In my experience, people do not go back to the heel strike. And all you need is a slope. And without a slope, I don't know quite how you do it because it becomes way too forced. I wanted to take a quick break from the show to tell you a little bit about our sponsor, SimplyFaster.com. SimplyFaster.com is a fantastic coaching resource, not only on the level of their blog and all the information they put out, but also on the level of their online store. With the click of a button, you can see and purchase the technology that is utilized by so many of the world's great coaches. In SimplyFaster.com's online store, you can have access to training technology such as blood flow restriction training, timing systems, including the free lap timing system, bar speed tracking devices, a variety of resistance training machines, such as the K-Box, and also Kaiser training units, which Kaiser training units being strongly recommended by sprint coach Randy Huntington, for example. You'll also get access to motorized sprint training units, such as the 1080 Sprint, force plates, and much more. You can check that all out by heading to simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. Let's get back to the show. It makes me think about, you talked about the Lego blocks and child development. And uh, Paul Cater, who's been on this podcast, talks about it. Like if you're a kid or a dog too, a dog's a good, like they just want to run up the hill. Like kids just want to run up the hill. Like it's built into our DNA that we love running up and down things. And you think in a normal development where all the Legos are there, that's that's just there and managing the hills. And so I found it, I know in your book, you talk a lot about that, like just using um, those nuances to help the heel striker. I will say too, that I'm glad you clarified that a little bit because I think it's very easy to be confrontational, like all heel strikes are bad, you know, like versus, and, and maybe the context, I think it is very contextual and a context that I can look at and be like, wow, this is not good is in my time in club track. I saw this a lot. Like we're talking, we're talking like nine, 10, 11 year old kids. And it's like half of the group when they're doing their sprint acceleration. So they're moving, like they're trying to sprint and like half of them, especially the ones you could tell are wearing clodhopper shoes and there, there, there was no mindfulness in footwear and they probably didn't play enough and do all those things. They're like heel striking it in a way that you can tell it's not helping them. <laughs> and versus a lot of the kids who just are kids and athletes and they play and run and like they're light on their feet. They're getting working that outside to inside edge and they're just like, it's totally different. And so I guess the context I would be looking at, well, one, I'm glad you clarified that because I think it's easy to say everyone who does that is, but like just that kid who on flat ground, not even talking about like just on a track, trying to sprint flat ground, or maybe it's a pavement or whatever. And they're just like, you could tell they're pounding their heel. I guess that's the kid I'm talking about. Yeah. And and they are, you can see it. It's almost, you, there's a wince. You look at it and you think, mm-hmm. oh, that's going to hurt. Yeah. And you can see the break. So there's a very big difference between a heel strike, which is just a gentle touchdown and an instant flow through the foot. 
and a heel strike, which is a break. Mm. So they're pound, they, they hit the ground so hard that actually is a break. And then they travel through the rest of the foot. So it's when it's breaking you, not to mention the loss of eccentric loading, but when it's actually breaking you, uh, B-R-A-K-I-N-G, then that is unhelpful unless you want to break. So if you're putting the most natural thing in the world, if you want to slow down, the most natural thing in the world is to shove your foot out and break with your heel, unless it's going to hurt you. Um, in which case we all, we all take lots of teeny tiny steps and put the forces through our knees which isn't great either. So part of my work is teaching people how to stop really quickly using their glutes uh, because that's, that's a really, they're really good for breaking and stopping uh, on the spot rather than using your heel if the ground isn't kind enough. I love what you said too about like it, the foot should be supinated and ready to strike, but it's a relaxed, it's like I've been reading the, a book by Bruce Lee's daughter. It's just like, be like water. And the first chapter is about how does water flow and how does, it's it's rigid, but it also can move through things. And I look at that with the foot. Like, yes, it needs to be really tense, but it also needs to flow with this high speed of the ground and everything else going on with the body. And I think it's very easy in uh, maybe a little more linear format. And I see this on track and field a lot. It's just setups where it's like, to get maximal stiffness, let's like dorsiflex the foot so it's this spring and let's, stomp or punch the ground and i just think like i think people will do that in practice but when it times it comes time to actually run i don't know how many people are actually consciously like trying to do that because it kind of like stops the flow it's like it's it's too much rigidity and it doesn't let that quick flow happen ideally when it needs to the brain knows how to do this the foot knows how to do this the whole thing connects and we marvel at how it can do all of this stuff in 0.2 of a second, all of the control of that happening. You look at the elite athletes, their, their jaws are relaxed, their necks are relaxed, their ankles are relaxed, their feet are relaxed, their feet are responding to the landing and, and itself organizing. When we start to get in the way, we bump into ourselves. When we start to take over, that's when we bump into ourselves, when we try and do too much of it. It's a bit like you haven't got left rotation. Let's just rotate left, beat the heebie-jeebies out of your left rotation. You will rotate left. <laughs> you will have a rigid lever. No, you, you just, can your, rigid, can your foot be rigid? Can it be relaxed? Okay. So now when you're running at speed, don't be in your way. You have to be relaxed in order for the response in your unbelievably complex system to happen in 0.2 of a second. If you do something, you have thrown your timing out completely. There is no time to do. You just have to have your body in a state that it can happen to it rather than you doing to it. I think, I mean, I think, I hope I made that sentence make sense. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. It's uh, for me, it's like, it's an open versus a closed mentality. It's like, you can have, like, even if I'm doing this podcast, if I like try to focus too hard, I'm going to only be able to think about one thing basically, and not be able to juggle some of the other concepts around. It's like the same thing in, in anything. But if, if I just have one way of thinking and it's like, yeah, try to manage your conscious mind in point two or sprinting point one seconds, you cannot do it. All you can do is be an observer really in your body. Like you've said, gift of notice. And like, and try to work with what your body's doing, not rather than you can't command your body in point one or point two. It just isn't going to work. 
And that's the beauty of the body. It's just, that's why it's so much fun. That's why I have so much fun. I'm sure you as well going out and training and moving and exploring because it's not me reading a book and trying to think about all the things I need to be consciously dominating my body and my stride with. It's more like, oh, what is my body trying to do? That's cool. Let's, you know, let's try to work with this a little bit. Let's see how things change when I, you know, give this element to my body. And so it's just, that makes it more fun to me. Yes. So you're letting your body get on with it. You put a stimulus in and you let your body get on with using that stimulus, whatever it might be, much like the the runner who was here, who uh, instantly gained. So eight minus, so uh, 16, six, can I do the maths? No, 15 centimeters of stride. He gained 15 centimeters of stride, no training. It was three hours later. Mm -hmm. He was no fitter, no stronger, just he had more available and he just used it. He didn't try to use it. It was just there to be used. It was not there. And then it was there. His body did it all. Um, he didn't have to do anything. He just, you know, existed in his body and let his body get on with it. His body knows what to do. It was just, it was just missing a timing element. And then as soon as it was given, it, the body knew what to do with it. Yeah, I think anyone who's, who's like had a significant dysfunction, even been through like a therapy that, that unlocks something. Like that feeling of like, whoa, you know, I'm not, I don't have to force anything here. Actually, one thing I was going to ask you, this is one um, like ball and arrows juggling. I forgot back about 30 minutes ago, but like, what were some of those fascial sling based exercises? I know you have like the, a lot of the Gary Ward cogs, uh, the woojwums and those types of things. Uh, I'm just curious what the sling exercises were, like twisting lunges, like that kind of thing. Like what were some of the elements that you were working on? No, no. Do you want to know the secrets? Sure. Yeah. Tell me, I always want to know the secrets. <laughs> yeah. So um, it wasn't an. He was lying down. Okay. He he was lying down, and we had proprioceptive feedback on his shoulders and his glutes. And what he discovered, what we discovered, so my hand was underneath one shoulder and the opposite glute. And on an exhale, so he's not holding his breath. It wasn't any more scientific than that. Just on your exhale, so you don't hold your breath move into my hands. And his right shoulder happily went into my hand, perfect timing. So we're looking for uh, symmetry of start-stop and uh, symmetry of intensity. And his left hip, he thought his left hip was going down and I was feeling nothing. And I had to more, 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 more. And so he thought he was twisting until, to, until tomorrow going left. And it was, okay, that's just about the same. So his, his calibration, the calibration in his brain-to-body connections was that nothing was a left rotation, but it was nothing. And he had to have a shed load of effort to create that same just gentle movement that the right had. It was just moving into my hand. And it's easily done. You can do it yourself. You can just put a cushion underneath your shoulders. Uh, something firm so that you know the moment the shoulder starts moving and you can't cheat. So people cheat, they move laterally and they squish the cushion or their hand by moving laterally. The movement is down and it creates a twist in the body. So where the slings are there, we don't have to train the slings. They're not even a muscle anyway. They're connecting a uh, a spiral line of muscles that creates our contra uh, lateral movement and our counter rotation. I should say. And when we did the other diagonal and now it was his left shoulder and his right hip, 
again, his right hip moved into my hand so beautifully, appropriate uh, timing, intensity. And I said, no, more. I want more, 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 more. And, uh, and he was, he felt in his, in, inside himself, he felt like he was this having this huge effort to turn, to twist his upper body to the left whilst lying down. And then by six reps, all was organized and it was easy and it felt symmetrical. So the, the, the pressure, whereas it felt like so one ounce on the shoulder and 10 pounds on the opposite hip, it was now an ounce on each diagonal. So at each end of the diagonal. So he organized, he was just able to organize just through proprioceptive feedback. It was just like a calibration. That's all it is. And we organized the slings, uh, each sling until, until it was all nice. And it felt inside his body the same, each end of each diagonal. And then because this, this element, this piece of Lego is connected to panoramic vision, we then have to go with panoramic vision, peripheral vision, divergent vision. So we started again and we added peripheral vision. And once again, there was a discrepancy between anything that was going left, it was more effort. But because a degree of brain-to-body calibration had already occurred, it was quicker the second time with the addition of the um, vision to organize it. And then I think, okay, so that feels better to my hands. He practices on his own hands uh, with a bit of feedback from his shoulders. Everything was better than it was before. We'd had no idea what was going to happen with it. It was just a hunch that it might be this piece of Lego. And he hopped on. He said, I feel great. Crank it up. So we went straight up to the same speed as we were at before. And, and it was visibly beautiful. It was, he was light on his feet. Uh, he, he knew he was instantly away from his red line. Something is not quite right. And we could measure the timing through the feet, the left rotation that was growing. It was starting to grow all by itself. We didn't tell the body to do anything. We just calibrated uh, the actions of these sling systems with vision. And his stride length organized itself to with, uh, within three centimeter difference between each one. Yeah. Wow. How different is that than just saying, just, just don't be so long on that leg. You know, it's, it's uh, such a different way of uh, just a notice and intuitive way of doing it. I, I really think that's, yeah. that's cool stuff. And it's good to yeah get that nuts and bolts example too. I'd almost forgotten that. Um, we don't have a ton of time left, so I do want to quickly, maybe just two more things. And one, so with the hills, so someone who needs to use their feet better, they rely too much on the heel. Could you go into some of the nuances of using the uphill and downhill and just what to notice? Like, what, what should I be noticing if I'm doing this? And how do I integrate it back into my stride? Yeah. So if you start at the top of the hill and, uh, and start to run down, if you present your heel on a downhill on concrete, mm. so do it on concrete, then very quickly it becomes uncomfortable. There's a jar that goes straight up through the foot uh, into generally the hip. And it feels lumpy and clunky. So if you're looking for fluid, efficient movement that isn't breaking, you feel the break. When you go downhill on a heel strike, you feel the break in a way that you don't feel when you're on the flat. 
So then the person becomes more aware. They notice that, oh my God, this literally is breaking me. So they get to feel what it's doing on the flat that they didn't know before. And then in seeking a smoother ride downhill, their brain-to-body connections automatically resolve it. They automatically start to present their foot more parallel to the slope, so with a more open ankle. And they'll start to take uh, maybe initially lots of little strides. And what I often do is I, I say, imagine you're a Segway. So go down. And the minute you feel that horrible, so you take, take little steps down and it'll be really nice and soft, fluid flowing uh, ride. And then when it starts to get clunky, know that you've opened your stride out just a little bit more and just stand back up, you know, use your, um, the segue, you, you, you stand backwards, don't you, and it breaks it or something like that. And, uh, and then just go back to your shorter strides, make it fluid again. And just a couple of repetitions of this downhill and and they've nailed a non-breaking non-impactful downhill run so of course every time they go uphill we have the opportunity to notice whether or not they're leaning into the hill and over challenging their knees and we get the opportunity to notice when the heel because as soon as you get to a, a degree of slope that's enough to not start on the heel as you walk up but you start on the front of the foot. You know what I mean? When, you know, when we go upstairs, we don't, we don't go upstairs landing on our heel. Nobody does. You go upstairs landing on your toe. The heel descends for sure, but you, you start on your toe. And when a slope gets steep enough that you can't walk up it heel to toe, you then start to notice you need a slope that's that steep. No, it's not that steep, but it's just more comfortable to go up uh, touching down first on midfoot, then you start to notice the heel descending, but it doesn't quite make the ground. So I've just, I've skipped a stage. So you can go up the hill walking and notice when you get to the steep bit at the top, my heel has got a little steep bit at the top, that actually you switch quite naturally to a four foot touchdown when you're walking. Then what you do is you start to run up the hill and when you run up a hill, it's almost when you run up the hill without trying to increase your heart rate, you tend to quite naturally go into a more somewhere in front of your heel touchdown. I don't like midfoot touchdown. I don't like forefoot touchdown. These are so prescriptive. It's somewhere in front of the heel, wherever your foot manages it. And your heel will descend and kiss the ground with a certain incline of slope. And when that slope incline changes and increases it, increases, you will notice if you're being aware when that heel no longer touches. And it's that level of noticing that protects you from overstretching your Achilles and injuring yourself when you're going up these hills, thinking about, well, I want to go up and I want my, I want my heel to kiss because I want that eccentric loading. No, there'll be a point where it doesn't kiss because now the slope is too steep. So it's, it's being aware of the terrain that you're on. If you're aware of the terrain, your brain-to-body connections will organize themselves. If you've provided them the input, look, it's much more comfortable and less lumpy and awkward if you take slightly shorter strides and don't land on that part of your foot. It is easier to run up the hill using your glutes if you don't lean into the hill. 
It is nicer on your knees. It feels so much cleaner on your knees when you go up a hill upright rather than leaning into it. And you can condition your calves really sweetly if you notice that point where your heels don't come down and kiss that increased slope incline. Blood work is a common analysis in the regime of elite athletes. It quantifies many dimensions and metrics of an athlete's physiology and helps one to see windows of potential performance improvement. Today's episode is also sponsored by Inside Tracker. Inside Tracker was founded in 2009 by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometrics. The company uses a blood test and patented algorithm to analyze your body's physiological markers, providing you with a clear picture of what's going on inside of you. Inside Tracker then offers science-backed recommendations for positive diet and lifestyle changes. In using Inside Tracker myself, it was truly fascinating to see the many metrics of my own physiology, looking at things like hormone levels, inflammation, blood oxygen-related metrics, and much more. If you are interested in an Inside Tracker analysis, for a limited time you can get 25% off the entire Inside Tracker store. And to get that discount, head to insidetracker.com/justflysports. That was one thing that I've thought about over time. I don't know it's it was, it's interesting for me I when I was younger when I would go up a hill like it, even if it was not a steep incline it was always on the balls of the feet you know high jumper very like springy type and I noticed as I've gotten a little bit older I tend to I still do it but it's a little bit less like especially I've gone on long hikes and things like that I notice I think I do it a little bit less than I used to but then I just start watching everybody I start watching like my kids do you know going up the hill what is their strategy because like I look at whatever their strategy is I'm like that's probably the right one you know, they're barefoot oftentimes at the park too. So versus you'll watch other people who are almost, I feel like almost invariably on their heels for too long a lot of times, especially if they don't have awareness or they're not runners and things like that. So I would imagine cross country runners, as opposed to like the average person who's just going to go to a 5k probably have a lot better, like because of the up and downhill, the trail, like you probably naturally, as long as you have some awareness, will figure that out versus all sports now it's like all just flat nice fields i was having a conversation with a kind of an older legendary coach and he's like yeah when we were little we just played the stream and it's all these and the fields sucked that we played on they're all sorts of like divots and stuff like that versus now it's like the more like pristine the surface it's hard to get that kind of thing i think that it, it breeds athletes who whose bodies not the athlete but the bodies become a little precious If uh, the input is always so pristine and level, there's never the challenge of unpristine. So then if you land slightly awkwardly, the response time is slower because you haven't ever had to need a response time. The sinews aren't strong enough to hold you. So that ankle goes underneath you and you've got uh, a horrible ligament injury. So the off-roaders, they learn to, it's self-preservation. You've got to dance. You've got to dance on your feet because if it's muddy, you, you can't waste any time on the ground. You've got to vary your tracking width. You've got to vary your cadence. You've got to vary um, how long you're uh, spending on the ground. Your touchdown point, maybe you've got to leap over that uh, bigger log. So you're going to land on your heel because you've got to reach with your step, but you've got to get off it quickly because you know it's going to be uncomfortable otherwise. So I think that even if you are... An athlete who uh, operates on uh, a pristine uh, soccer pitch, if you can get out into nature and just operate your body at least once a week in nature and ask it to do just natural things, then you're going to be, I think, more resilient to the injuries of everything has to be perfect. 
and the the weak you, you get strong in certain areas I feel if everything is perfect and very weak in a shadow it's it's unknown until it's right in front of you and that ankle doesn't hold you when uh, when you land on it just not quite in the right place I couldn't agree more. I've done a few videos on Instagram and whatnot. My big muse these days, really for the last two, three months, has been like minimal shoes and go in the woods and once at least once a week, trails in the woods. And yeah, it's it's the ultimate reset button. It's really good. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Not to mention breathing all the good oxygen yes. that the kind trees are letting out. So, you know, they they'll suck up our carbon dioxide and we get their oxygen. It's a great exchange. Oh, 100%. I had that like kind of a revelation I was doing usually up until I started doing more sprints in the woods, which for me, it's only five minutes away. So it's just an easy drive go. And then like just even when a car goes by and you're running on the street, like I'm very sensitive to that now way more than I was like five years ago. And then you get in the woods and it's just like just so much the oxygen so much better just so much better yeah all right so i know we just got like five minutes left i did want to get to this quickly you alluded to it um so maybe the nutshell answer but hills for glutes i know in your book you talk about hills for glutes and people who feel like too much hamstring tightness in running they aren't leveraging that what are some basic principles of we're on the topic of hills using that to leverage the action of the glutes in running yeah so lots of people they come in their physios have told them that they have sleepy glutes and they've done all of the glute exercises, uh, all of the, and, and if you want peachy glutes, great. Get going with those clams and uh, crab walks. And without a doubt, they strengthen the muscle tissue, but the, the, the muscle can only respond to the joint action. You can't clench those glutes as you run. If you clench your glutes, you go backwards. Clenching glutes is a break. B-R-A-K-E, it stops you. So it's not about uh, clenching, shortening, contracting when you want forward motion. Then you need loading. So it is, if you lean into the hill, so people say, okay, well, we're loading if we lean into the hill because we're hinging. The problem with that is your glutes well, actually, the, your knees, your your uh, VMO is the thing that is really beaten up in this instance, and you can feel it instantly. The moment you lean forward, you are lengthening your glutes, but not to the point where they get the opportunity to contract and be productive in your hip extension. Your forward lean has created hip flexion, and you stay in hip flexion. So, The only way you're going to access that hip extension is if you stay a plumb line to the world. So you're upright, whether or not you're on the flat, on the downhill, on the uphill, you're a plumb line to the world. And that way, as you go up the hill, your touchdown point flexes the hip, but you're upright. And as your body travels over it with an upright torso, your hip now enables, is is able to get into the position of extension and you feel your glutes push you up the hill. The game changer for everybody I do hills with is, oh my goodness, I felt my glutes. So when you lean forward, you do not feel your glutes activate. If you activate them, you just, well, I mean, it, it just doesn't work. So for them to activate, you you have to be further back. It's not a lean back. It's just vertical. So I, I bang on about being vertical and endlessly. 
So we've previously found, my water I just kicked on the floor, uh, we've previously found how to be stacked and then we take it to the hill. And everybody, by the way, is stacked when they run down a hill. I've never, ever, ever come across anybody who leans forward running down the hill. They are stacked. And that space they maintain when they go up the hill, they don't hinge into the hill and they find their glutes. They were there all along. And if they've done all the the clams and the crabs, they are juicy and meaty and can be used. Cool. Yeah, I I definitely agree with like the, yeah, you can make your glutes rigid uh, by doing whatever in the gym, but it's the nuance of that on and off cycle and setting them up on the hill. So I know next time I'm running some hills, I'll, I'll play around with that level of lean and and just notice how that changes it so that's a yeah it's definitely a good uh, it's another nice parameter to have in mind you know when you're stacked when you have maximum head rotation Mm. so if you lean forward you'll have less head rotation if you lean too far back you'll have less head rotation so your insurance policy is where am i even if it feels like i'm leaning back compared to normal if i have my maximum head rotation then i'm golden yeah, it fits with um, like some of the Postural Restoration Institute things. Uh, Pat Davidson, who's been on the show, talked about that at, this at his seminars, like sagittal plane first in the sense of when the sagittal plane is in the right position, is it when it's stacked, then you unlock the other planes of motion. And They're all saying the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Just different words, different ways, different emphasis. Yes, but exactly, exactly. Nothing great is going to happen until your head's on right. Yeah, it's cool to think about that. <laughs> It's really cool to think about that and running. I'll I'll definitely think about that as well. And I love too with that downhill. Like I love the things where it's like all of a sudden it's like safety. The you like downhill. What what uh, triggers the body to set up for safety in the sense of like organized to do this correctly and take the forebrain out of it the downhill work. You know, I there's there's something that's so cool about just that like yielding element and when that's in play. So I wish we had more time to talk, Helen. But I I know you're running out of time as well. So I really appreciate everything you taught me today and just having this conversation with you. Lots of things to think about on my end. So I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me back on again, Joel. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in for another show. Awesome to have you here. We'll see you guys next week with another great guest.